I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 24, and as you do that, I just, I don't know if all of you can smell bacon. Like, I, I know the choir can smell it, and I can smell it, but you want to talk about making a preacher's job harder? This is it. I mean, already we're hungry, and now this, the smells of bacon are going, and it's not great. Um, Luke chapter 24, we're going to begin in verse 13. <laughs> where we will read of the first post-resurrection appearance of Jesus that Luke records for us, the first of three, actually, uh, and it occurs with these two followers of Christ on the road to Emmaus. So, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 35. Let's hear God's word together. It says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only one, the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, he, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is not far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. He vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach now this, your holy word, we pray that you, through your spirit, might make it a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, in these moments, lead us to he who was dead, but now is alive, our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord, in whose name we ask. Amen. The all-sufficient word. The all-sufficient word. 
Uh, well, now that, that college football, sorry, Harry, I'm going to turn this on. Now that the college football season ha has officially come to an end, uh, I'm sure that many of you who, like me, are sort of sports fanatics, have turned your attention to college basketball, at least maybe as a stopgap until baseball starts. Uh, but if you are there, uh, you are eagerly awaiting March Madness and the announcement of the 68-team field. Uh, now, for some, uh, for some teams, that announcement is going to feel sort of like a foregone conclusion, right? Uh, their records, their achievements, both present and, dare I say it, maybe even in the past, uh, will give them a place in the tournament, almost guarantee them a place in the tournament. But for others, and let's be honest, that's the teams that most of us root for, except for Miss Sue Ann and, and maybe Ethan Jackson, uh, the teams that we root on, uh, their, their place is tenuous at best, uh, and so uh, there's a great deal more um, kind of floundering, right? We're, we're wondering. And so, of course, because it makes for good TV, uh, ESPN or CBS or whoever is covering these bubble teams, they will put them in, a, in separate rooms, uh, and they will put a camera on them to capture that moment, that moment of anticipation and then that moment where dreams are either realized or they are dashed. They are crushed completely. Now, it's hard to watch that in some sense. These young people, their hopes just completely lost. But it is interesting to watch. Uh, it's interesting in terms of the buildup, right? Uh, to watch it in their words, to watch it in their body language. Uh, on the one hand, coaches especially... Uh, they're going to come on with, with full confidence, presenting the, the case for their team. And by the time they get done, for all of us, hope will spring eternal, right? we we'll say, yes, he is right, we are in. But then, because it's a long show and the network has to fill the time somehow, they also sort of on loop uh, show all of the worst moments from the season, Right? Show all of the bad plays, all of the bad losses, all of the bad highlights. And the kids in the room are seeing it, and we're seeing it, and you can see it in their body language. They're kind of like, oh, this is not good. You know, hope begins to fade a little. Maybe we haven't done enough. Maybe we won't get in. You know, it seems for those three or four hours, they're kind of riding this uh, emotional roller coaster. Hope hangs in the balance. Now, I begin there, and most of you probably don't like college basketball and you have no idea what I'm talking about, but I begin there because as Luke introduces us to these two disciples and to the conversation that they are having as they travel the seven miles between Jerusalem and Emmaus, I think we can imagine that the situation that they find themselves in on a much bigger, a much more significant scale uh, is just as tenuous as that for our bubble teams. As we've said, hope for them seems to hang in the balance. And the question is, what, if anything, can restore that hope? Now, that's a significant question. Not only for these disciples on the road, but it's a significant question for all of us who would claim to be followers of Christ. No, our specific circumstances are not the same as these men. Obviously, they find themselves at a very particular point in redemptive history. But we do so often find ourselves struggling 
with life's situations, life's circumstances, right? Dealing with our own sin, dealing with the sins of others, looking for and longing for some glimmer of hope in a lost and dying world. And again, the question is, is where can we find it? Where do we go when all seems lost? How can hope be restored? Well, here today, we are reminded that the only source of lasting hope is not in, you know, good mantras. You wake up today and you have a good mantra that you say. Not that there may be anything wrong with that, but that's not going to give you any lasting hope. Uh, Hope doesn't come from money. It doesn't come from earthly fulfillment, though we chase all of those things. Hope is found in a person. It's a person who has revealed himself in and through the pages his all-sufficient word. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but if we want hope, if we want security, if we want peace, it begins and it ends here. In the pages of Scripture. So, with that in mind, I want us to look at this together. Let's see the all-sufficient word. First in this passage, I want you to notice the, the need of the word. Uh, If you have your little outline there, you notice I kind of subtitled it, uh, Hope in the Balance. Uh, Again, that's what we see here with these folks. Notice it's still Easter afternoon. And not surprisingly, the the hot topic, the the topic that in our day would be trending, right? That's what we would say. This this is the trending topic among uh, social media or whatever. What is trending then is what has happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. And now this message that has come from these women, that that maybe, maybe he's no longer there. Something has happened to Jesus' body, and everybody seems to be talking about it. Everybody except this stranger, this one man along the road who draws near, and those are significant words, he draws near to them, he begins to ask some questions, right? Now, look, Luke here, he, as he does so often, he, he can't keep it back. He, he lets the cat out of the bag right at the beginning. He says, this was Jesus that, that has revealed himself to them, that has come to them. And so we know who this figure is that is talking to these disciples, but we need to keep in mind that they don't. That they have no idea who it is that has confronted them. For whatever reason, it says there in verse 16, God has kept them from recognizing him. Now look, um, we could spend a lot of time debating on why that is. There are page after page written on this, but we're not going to do that this morning. Y'all are all sensible folks because I'm going to leave you to that. Uh, It's homework, if you like. Go and, and research why people have said this. But the simple fact is, is whether it was due to to Jesus' resurrected body, whether it was due to their own sin, or whether it was simply God's timing, they did not recognize the Savior who was right before them. And so the whole kind of irony of the situation is lost on them. And we can almost hear the, the exasperation in the voice of Cleopas when he says in verse 18, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Are you kidding me right now? Do you really not know what we're talking about? 
I mean, it is almost unfeasible for him that this man does not know. Again, don't miss the irony of it all. Obviously, Jesus does know, and he knows better than anyone what has happened. But, but, I think we see something of his grace to sinners here. When in verse 19, he doesn't say, hey, I know exactly what happened. But when he says there, what things are you talking about? Tell me, tell me just exactly what it is that you have on your mind. First, he draws near. And then, as only a good shepherd, a good pastor, in this case a good God would do, he gives them the opportunity to unload their burden. Kindness? Isn't it a sweetness of the Lord that he gives them this opportunity to spill their guts. In fact, he almost coaxes Cleopas into doing it. And man, does he. It's almost like he takes one deep breath and then in one swoop, he just gets it all out in the air, right? As fast as he can, as fast as the words will come out of his mouth, he unloads all of his burden on to Jesus. And notice that in laying it all out, Notice how he exposes his own misunderstandings of the word, of the truth. Notice how he exposes even the condition of his own heart. He says there, he was a man who was a prophet, who had done great signs, who had done great miracles. Now friends, to be sure, Jesus was a great man, who was a great prophet, the prophet. And Luke's book is an account of all of the great miracles he had done. And so this is not uh, a wrong statement about Jesus, but it is not a full statement about Jesus, right? It leaves out at least one key factor, a factor that Jesus had neither run from nor hid. At the very minimum, they should have noted that as the Son of God, which he had made clear, he was the Son of God, they should have noted that he was more than just a man. He was more than just a prophet. Truthfully, if they had really been listening, they actually should have noted that he was indeed God in the flesh. And so, almost immediately... Uh, they show their misunderstanding of the person of Christ, okay? Then they move on to his death. And notice, whatever they had hoped from Jesus, most likely a political Messiah, a deliverer from Rome, it now seems to be a distant hope. All that they had looked to him for now seems to, to be uh, lost in verse 21, right? Their, their plans, their expectations have fallen apart, and all the, the joy, all the bright future they had imagined through Christ is gone. So not only have they misunderstood the person of Christ, they've also misunderstood his work. Because of that, they are teetering sort of on the verge of despair. Now, friends, I'm going to stop here just for a second, long enough to say to you that there's a bigger picture here. 
And the bigger picture is when we do not understand who Jesus is, if, if we do not understand his person, if we do not understand his work, then the place where that will lead us is to the same place where these disciples find themselves. It will lead us to the verge of despair. Consider the, the Jehovah's Witness who believes that Jesus is something more than a man, but something less than God. Ultimately, what can that Savior do for them? Not a whole lot. If he is not God, then he cannot save. Okay? He cannot go before the Father and represent us to the Father. He cannot deal with sin if he is not God in the flesh. Well, what about liberal, progressive Christianity that takes Jesus and they say, oh, he's just a great example for us to look at. Or maybe they say, well, you know, this whole resurrection business, this whole miracle business, all of these things, eh, that's not really essential. That's not really important. Really, he was just giving us an example to follow, something that we could look at and say, oh, this is how to live. Now, look, he is an example to follow, but if that's all he is, then friends, we don't have a Savior we don't have a person, a God, who can save us. And so, we are in despair. Whether we realize it or not, eventually, at some point, they're going to realize it. It leads to despair. And so, I say all of that to say, Christology, who is Jesus? It's important. It's the most important question that any of us, as Christians, could ask ourselves and consider. But it is the most fundamental question that anyone in the world has to wrestle with. Who is he? What has he done? we got to know. Here, he's going to reveal it to them. The only thing keeping these uh, disciples from going right over the edge is the story that the women and later the disciples had come back with uh, from earlier that morning. Uh, the empty tomb. The angels, Jesus' body is gone. But, but even that had not really given them any security. They still didn't understand. And so they are left with this sort of odd mix of confusion and fear and sadness, maybe with just a hint of expectant wonder as they walk along the road there. Now, notice, Jesus, uh, he listens to it all. And even though he knows the story, even though he knows exactly what is in their hearts, he listens. Again, friends, I cannot emphasize to you enough what a sweet kindness that is. He is a good elder brother. He, he is the, the great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness, and who even invites us in to bear our souls, souls full of sin. Souls full of misunderstanding and blindness and anger and sadness. He says, bring it all to me. You can lay it all out on the line before him, just as David does, right? Throughout the Psalms, David is just laying it all out before God. He invites you to do the same. He draws near for you to do the same. And so he listens, but then he responds. And the response is significant. Notice, he first rebukes them. He says, oh, you foolish ones. I think it's a gentle rebuke to be sure, but it's a rebuke nonetheless that they should have understood. They should have seen the truth. 
then, then he shows them their great need. Notice, notice there in 25 and 26, it's a need for the word. It's a need for what God has said in the pages of Scripture. Look, it's interesting to me that this is Jesus' response. He doesn't simply uh, reveal himself in those moments, right? You would think if he really wanted to make an impression on these folks walking down the street talking about all that had just happened, he would just walk up to them, walk up to them and say, Hey, it's me. I'm alive. And they would say, Oh, yeah. I got it, right? It would seem to make the most sense. He didn't do that. Instead, he opens the Bible for them. He opens it to them. Why does he do that? Well, turn back with me just a couple pages to chapter 16 of Luke and in verse 31. You remember, this is the the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man has appealed to Abraham. And he says there in verse 27, I beg you, Father, to send uh, him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Then verse 31, he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, here Jesus is, risen from the dead. And he could just appear to them. He could say, here I am. But what does Jesus know? He knows the hardness of our hearts. He knows how prone to wander they are. And he knows the truth of chapter 16 and in verse 31. He knows that it is only through the Word of God that the reality of the resurrection or the crucifixion or his entire life can truly be understood and grasped. Apart from the whole counsel of God. Apart from his grand grand plan of redemptive history, nothing that has happened will make sense. Not only that, but none of it will be or can be believed. So Cleopas and his companion, those women at the tomb last week, all people everywhere, they have a great need, an essential need for the Word. When things are falling apart, when hope is in the balance, when things are great and life is joyous, what you need is not a sign from God. What you need is not good advice. What you need is not a 12-step part. What you need, most of all, is the Word. You need the Bible. Now, someone may say, What part of the Bible do I need? You know, how can I know which part to go to? Well, that leads us to our second point. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice the message of the Word. And again, subtitled, 
uh, hope's foundation. And you see it there in verse 27. And he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, and all the scriptures, the things concerning him. Now, friends, as a preacher, I would give most anything to have been there in that moment to listen to Jesus expound the Old Testament. His hermeneutics, how, how did he handle the Old Testament? What did he do with it? How did he point it to himself? I'd have given anything to hear it, and you probably would too. But notice, he begins with Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. He begins there, and he goes all the way through the prophets, seemingly all the way to Malachi. In other words, the whole Old Testament, Jesus interpreted all the things that were about who? About himself. One commentator says, here Jesus gives us the key to unlocking the Hebrew Scriptures. And the key is himself. They are all about him. Not simply in the prophecies that, that we all know and love so well that we saw it at, through the Christmas season. It's not just about him there, but it's about him in the patterns. It's about him in the activity of God. It's about him as we see the life of Israel unfold. All of it, every page points to Jesus. This is what the author of the, the book to the Hebrews is trying to get to, right? He, he's trying to explain this. Again, more homework. I encourage you, go read the book of Hebrews. But from the garden, from creation itself, to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to the judges, to Samuel, to Elijah and Elisha, to David, to the Psalms, to Isaiah and Jeremiah, to the twelve minor prophets, to Esther and Nehemiah. That's pretty much covers it, right? From the creation to exile and return. Pretty much covers the whole thing. The central theme is Jesus. Now, this is why we cannot simply unhitch our theological wagon, as one pastor suggested, from the Old Testament. We will have no understanding of what Jesus has done. No understanding of God without these books. Not only that, but to unhitch from it would mean losing not only the material that prepares the way for Jesus, but, material, hear me here, material that reveals Jesus, that tells His story, the story of our Redeemer. So if you're only reading the New Testament... You're doing yourself a disservice. You are missing out on God's fullness, on all that he has done, the fullness of Christ. And Paul says it there at the top of your bulletin. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now think, when Paul said that, what did he have in mind? Not the New Testament, because the New Testament wasn't written yet. In parts it was written. But he had the Old Testament in mind, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's true because all of it, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, it leads us to Christ, who is the, the foundation, who is the message of of the word. Now, one final point. Thirdly and finally in this passage, I want you to notice 
the work of the word. Hope realized, okay? Hope realized. They come to the village. Uh, He acts, Jesus does, as if he's going to leave them there, go on. But they urge him to stay, which he agrees to do. And then as they prepare to eat, this man who had been a stranger to them, he blesses their meal and he breaks the bread and suddenly their, their eyes are open. Suddenly they see Jesus and as quick as they see him, he is gone. Now the question that we've got to ask is what caused them to see Jesus? Why is it that they all of a sudden, why all of a sudden were their eyes open to the reality? Was it that he had prayed and they, something familiar in his words? Was there something familiar in the way that, that he had broken the bread? You know, they had certainly heard of the Last Supper. These two disciples were not there. This is this followers of Christ. They were not part of the twelve. Uh, they had most likely heard of how he had fed the 5,000 if they had not been there. And so maybe there was something familiar in it. And verse 35 seems to affirm that truth, right? It says that, that he is known to them in the breaking of the bread. So there's something there. What is it? Notice what they say in verse 32. Notice what left the impression on them. What I believe was truly at work in them, leading them to understand and believe in Christ's resurrection. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Maybe in the breaking of the bread, combined with all that Jesus had just said to them on the road, when their hearts were on fire, Maybe then Isaiah 53 came alive to them and they saw him break that bread and they said, ah, this is the suffering servant. This is Jesus. Maybe it was the the manna from heaven in Moses' day. And they went back to Jesus' words in John 6 and he said, I am the bread from heaven. And they said, oh, there it is. Maybe it was the whole sacrificial system. They saw that bread broken. They made the connection. Maybe it was the the sign of Jonah, buried in the fish for three days and risen again. Maybe that did it. It's whatever it was. And we've seen it could be most any part of the Old Testament. The fact is, is what they state there, as Jesus spoke to them through his word, their hearts burned within them. It was his teaching, it was his word that led to the restoration of resurrection hope. It was the word that did it. Now, that that leads us to a whole question about our apologetics and about the arguments that we make. If we divorce them from the truth of Scripture, then we should not expect many to believe, right? It is the word that bears fruit in people's lives. It is the word that does not come back void. Not our arguments, but the word. So we lead with it always. Through God's all-sufficient word, they came to believe. They were filled with joy, and they go out worshiping and proclaiming the truth of all they had seen. They quite literally had been confronted by the living Savior and all His sufficient Word. 
Friends, the truth is, is it is there, even now, where his people, where sinners are confronted by him today. Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, he still draws near. I said, that's a significant little phrase there. He still draws near. He still invites us to bear our souls before him. And then, through the pages of his word, he opens them to us and shows us about ourselves, shows us the truth about him. Him and his great love. Him and his great mercy. Him and his kindness to those he has called. Him and his redeeming life and death and resurrection. Him and the eternal glory that he has achieved for us. Now look, we're about to wrap this up. But I want to say to you, big picture wise, I recognize that in this sermon, as I'm preaching it, I recognize to you that basically you could hear me say in this sermon, go out and read your Bibles. And truthfully, I'm saying that to you. But it's so much bigger than just, hey, go read your Bibles. Do it because God has commanded us to do it. Do it because it is a joy to do it. But friends, in the Word is joy. In the Word is the Savior. In the Word is resurrection hope because in the Word is Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're lost, open the Word. Open the Bible. Read it. See what He has to say to you. If you're here today and you're sad, open the Bible. There is joy. There is mercy there in these words. If you're here today and you need hope, open the Word. Read it. He's given it to you. What a kindness that He has given it to you. Wherever you are today, open the Word and learn to embrace the One who you will find there. The One who is the Alpha and the Omega. The One who is the story of God. The story of His history. Jesus Christ our Lord. As we pray together, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in darkness, that you have not left us without a way to understand you and know who you are, that you have given us scripture. And so, Lord, we pray that we, as uh, the people of God, would cling to every word that is written there, that we would not add to it, we would not take away from it, we would not dismiss it. We would not take it for granted or just put it over in the corner and let it rest. Father, that it would be the joy of our hearts. It would be the foundation of our lives. Because in it, we find our Savior. In it, we find Jesus. And Lord, how we thank you that that your word, through the power of your spirit, it does convince our hearts of these truths. It does illumine us and open us to, to the reality of what you have said to us. Father, we pray uh, that we would uh, cherish these things. Lord, we thank you that we have a risen Savior. We thank you that he is alive today, that, that this word tells us that, and we know it's true because it says it. Lord, help us to go out with, with his hope, with his love, with his mercy. Help us to go out as his people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.